This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through to 17. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to do such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Amen. Amen. This is the second week uh, that we look into prayer. Uh, Last week, uh, Jesus spoke on prayer, and his exhortation was to be persistent. Uh, Pray persistently because prayer works. And he shared this parable of a widow who needed justice in her life. So she goes to this unjust judge to, uh, to plead her case over and over and over. And the, and the, the principle, the lesson of the parable is quite simple, that even an unjust judge will be moved by the persistent cries, requests of this widow. And so Jesus challenges his people pray persistently because prayer works and the question then is why does persistent prayer work that God not only hears your prayers he cannot not hear your prayers as this lady came to the judge over and over and over the one thing that he could not do was not be a judge though he was an unjust judge he was a judge and so he couldn't not hear and in the same way God cannot not hear our prayers and so the exhortation is believe in prayer prayer works pray persistently and you'll be surprised once you get to heaven how God has used your prayers but then this week He cautions us. If last week was, hey, press the accelerator 100 to the floor so that you're going 100, you know, not not 100 kilometers an hour because that's too slow. 100 miles per hour, that idea is go all in. Put your efforts into prayer. But this week, the idea is, but I just also want you to know that accelerator may be pressed to the floor, but your car could be in neutral. And so you may not be going anywhere with your prayer. And so though prayer works because God cannot not hear, he hears your prayer, 
There is a kind of prayer that's ineffective. And there is a kind of prayer that does not, that is not even accepted. And so the big question that we're going to be asking is, what kind of prayers are not accepted? Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in in themselves, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. And you have to read this with this, this haughty tone. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week. I give tithes to, of all that I get. It's interesting. Two people pray, but one only really prays. Two people go to pray. Only one prayer is heard. And this is not shocking to us because you may have heard this and you don't know what a tax collector is and you don't know what a Pharisee is. You haven't seen them. You haven't been bothered by them. But if you were living in this world and you would hear this, there was a, this is a, shock, uh, a shocking parable. It, you know, as, and when someone says something to drop the mic, to, to bring you to that point of shock, that's this parable. And the idea is this religious man, right, who fasted twice a week, gave 10% of everything. This is that person that you think of when you think of a godly Christian. It's that person that you, that you think of that may have maybe even told you how to come to faith. Maybe you came to them in a moment of need. And you went to them. And then there's this tax collector. You see, the tax collector is a problem person because they were Jews working for the Roman government. And what they would do is work for the Roman government to collect taxes. But the tax collectors were known to be given way too much authority that they could overtax and all the terrorists and all of it, they can take also for themselves. And this was their right. The best way, I think, for us to be able to understand it is if you're Korean or if you're American and maybe probably other parts of the world, is if you're a Democrat, this is a Republican. If you're a Republican, this is a Democrat. And that's the idea. There's something that the other party does in such a way that it bothers you. And the idea is there is this religious person who seems so good and then the one that works for the government from that other party, whatever that other party is, from that other party. And God says, that person that you think is the worst Because that tax collector, what they would do is take money even from the poor. And Jesus is all about the poor. And Jesus says, this prayer by this tax collector is the prayer that I accept. And that's why at the end of it all, it says he goes away justified. And so when you think about what kind of prayer is not accepted, this is the prayer that's not accepted. right? It's the prayers of the proud that are not accepted. 
It's not talking about morality here, but there's this pride within. So in 14, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What kind of prayer is not accepted? The prayers of the proud. And I hate speaking about pride because it's so hard to describe. Right? There's many times in this Gospel of Luke, it talks about humility and pride. And every week, I struggle. Like, what, How do I describe pride in a way that the proud person could hear? Right? Usually, the proud person's like, yeah, it's not me. And so my job is to convince the one or the few or the many who think, oh, this is not about me because I'm, I'm a pretty humble person. Well, this is for you. And if you don't think it's you, well, give yourself but don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. I think the only way we ever hear correction is just taking a step back and saying, maybe, maybe I'm a little biased. Maybe there is some pride to be addressed. You see, pride is dangerous because it's so subtle and deceptive. Because the way in which this verse talks about pride is that it's a desire to exalt yourself. Pride is exalting yourself. That would be a good definition of pride. If you can walk away with understanding, okay, what is pride? Pride is, is that desire where you want to exalt yourself. You've, you've heard this uh, quote, um, actually before that, uh, pride is exalting yourself, thinking, uh, one of the ways that we've thought about it is pride is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And that's, I think, a decent, another decent way to explain it. But also, I don't think it's all that accurate because there's a truth in there that when you think too highly of yourself, there's definitely pride. But also the challenge is, for many of us, that we actually think too lowly of ourselves in certain ways, right? So there's this insecurity. And so you're always trying to figure out, well, well, what parts of myself do I bring higher? What other parts of myself do I bring lower? And so, yes. There's a form of pride within all of us where you do think too highly of yourself. At the same time, there's other parts of you where you are good and loving in a certain way and you haven't been affirmed in that. And so when you think about pride as exalting yourself, this is how, uh, there's, there's this one quote that's attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it's actually not. It's about humility. Humility is, is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Many of you have heard that quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, trying to, trying to you know, uh, uh, paint uh, the image of yourself as this lower person. And so you've, you've been, you've, you might have heard this, and once you understand, okay, it's not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less, that makes sense, that life is not about me. So what I, what I would say is pride, along with that definition, is pride is not, is not only thinking more highly of yourself, that is a form of pride, it's not only, only thinking more highly of yourself, it's thinking of yourself more. It's thinking about yourself more. The idea of exalting yourself is everything that you do, the direction goes back to you. The life's end goal is about you. And so when things don't go your way, your understanding of God is God is unjust because it didn't go your way. And that's how subtle pride is. Because we don't ever think I'm wrong to feel this way about God. But the way in which we all work is everything, all of life, life's equation 
At the end of it, it has to equate to a good life for you. And so humility would be understanding maybe, maybe all of life does not equate to life about you. That maybe all of life is actually about something else. But pride is exalting ourselves, making everything about me, my desires, my expectations, and what I want. You see, this is why pride is so dangerous. Because in these words of, uh, of uh, the, the Pharisee, it's hard to understand what went wrong. Right? When you look at the, these words, when the Pharisee prays, what does he pray? Right? He says he trusted in himself. Right? Then he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Well, haven't there been times that you've prayed those prayers? God, I th- I'm genuinely thankful for my life. I thank you for the shelter that I have. You know some of the struggles of your friends. You say, God, I thank you for that. The question is, is that pride? I don't think so. I think the reason that this verse is so challenging is though he prays to God, he's not praying to God. Right? He says, I five times. God, I thank you that I, right, that I am not like other men, right, extortionist, unjust, adultery, or even like this. I fast twice a week, and I tithe all that I get. The reason that this is wrong is not that he's grateful for the graces in his life, for the ways in which God has provided for him. That's not a bad thing. Because even Paul himself says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Recognizing that all the ways that he's seen success, growth, faithfulness, he attributes to God. But I think when it says, I thank you for this, I think in reality the way that we feel is he's really saying, I thank me. God, I thank me. God, I'm pretty good. God, this and this about myself. Because at the end of the day, life is about him and what he has done because he has, quote-unquote, trusted himself. You see, that's why pride is so bad. He, it says in verse 9, he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves. Right? You're thinking about yourself, your works. You trust in your good works. And then he just tags this line on Jesus and treated others with contempt. In that verse, I believe we see a huge problem in our society. You see, there's so much judgment today, but this is not the main problem. The main problem is not that everyone's judging each other. That is a huge problem. The main problem is that no one thinks that they're the ones being judgmental. Isn't that right? It's always the other party, it's always the other person, very little ownership, very little accountability for self. And that's what this verse is talking about. This is why pride is so dangerous. You see, pride doesn't just come from a place of trying to lower others, it comes from a a place of trying to exalt self. Right? And so therefore, in the political discussion, it's not that the, the Republicans are trying to lower the Democrats. Some of you may agree with that statement, but just go along with me. It's that they feel that they're so right. So they're exalting themselves, and vice versa, Democrats as well. 
And this is with every party and every way in which we can think of. Right? Chances are you've judged people not because you want to see themselves as lower, see others as lower. Well, there's that guy. Yeah, I just don't like him. And you intentionally just, just judge them. Because chances are you're not. But what you are doing is always justifying yourself. Well, I did this and I did that. And this is my effort. It's always about me, 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 me. And it's in our desire to exalt ourselves, we end up judging others. And this is why pride and love can never exist. And this is why pride is the great sin. Because once you are proud, there's no room to love God and love neighbor. When life is about me, 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 that's when you're most vulnerable to sin, to judgment, to hate, to acts that are not helpful. Can I tell you one of my greatest ministry failures? You're like, yes, bring it up. <laughs> so it was uh, the last day of the church I was serving at previously. And, you know, it was a day in which I knew that it was going to be a big day. I was going to say bye to a lot of people. And then that's what I was looking forward to, just having conversations with all these people that I've been able to do life with. I had asked one of our administrators to take care of a class that was starting up because I was overseeing all the classes. And so for that last day, I told him, hey, if you, might, if you don't mind, if you can uh, over, just you make sure that everyone's uh, contacted, uh, if you can organize the room, get, get people situated, and someone else will be coming and teaching the class. Well, after service, I go down to the room, and nothing's set up. Everyone's confused. So I'm frustrated, because I have my farewell party to go to. And so as in this, I start organizing the class, putting up the chairs, all of it. And then I see the administrator come down. I pull him to the side, and I lost it. I say, don't you know what today is about? I've been looking forward to this day for so long. There's so many people I'm not, being, I'm not able to say bye to because I'm doing this. Man, what happened? And it wasn't gentle at all. Well, the whole day passes. I go to my farewell thing, and it's around 8, 9 p.m., and just going through the day. And I feel so broken. And I think, how in the world did that happen? That's not me. I've never done that. And I thought about it. And the lie that I believed was that day was about me. That's exalting myself. No, I could have had a conversation with them. You know, I was disappointed. I really wanted to see, you know, and really you know, help him understand, you know, the ways in which he could have been helpful. But it was the way in which I did it. And I think about that. And I think about, I didn't want that, the administrator to feel that way. And I think about this passage and realize that's all you need to believe. Life is about you. You're exalting yourself. And it's in that moment you will see yourself be the most unloving person you can imagine. Not because you're so fill, filled with hatred or judgment to the other person because you're exalting yourself. Let all the arrows to life is about you. And in this you start to realize why Jesus paints this picture of this religious man you see, in one sense, the more religious you are, the less you could love because there's a growing pride within. And so we want to look at now the prayers of the humble. What kind of prayers are accepted? 
the prayers of the humble. But the tax collector, in verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to, to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, there's so much description in the prayers of the proud. And when I read this verse about humility, for me, I'm frustrated because I want more. All he prays is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so the practical application is, well, pray that. And then the, question, the follow-up question is, is that all I pray? How do I pray? How do I become humble? Tell me. I know my pride. And it's in that I realize the Bible doesn't give you five steps to how to become humble. Because if it did, what we would do is work really hard <laughs> at trying to be humble and start judging others who aren't humble. And then there we are, trusting in our own good works, trusting in our own righteousness, and judging the proud. And so it, the, uh, it's so challenging. Because then it's like, okay, how do I even walk? How do I even go about doing this? If pride is, so, is such a cancerous desire that even takes the good things that we do, fasting, praying, giving, being generous, if it takes all of those good works and attaches it to our righteousness, then it's like, how do we do it? And the solution is not be a bad person, okay? The solution is not do whatever you want, feel bad about yourself, and you'll always be humble. Because you'll start to judge others who aren't like you. So the Bible doesn't tell us five ways to be humble. But it does give us clear characteristics of what humility looks like. And this is not do this. This just is. And so hopefully if you can, if you, if you can understand these truths, it starts to become more true of you. How do you pray in such a way and, and who, how can you become such a person where your prayers are accepted? One, humility is not comparative or circumstantial. Right? The, tax, the Pharisee, he compares himself. I'm not like these other people. The, the tax collector, it's very simple. God, be merciful to me. But it begins by saying the tax collector standing far off. And the religious person is, is, uh, uh, enters into the temple standing and praying. Chances are this was a service that he attended and he knew where to go. He knew the ways in which you pray. And the way that you would pray in those days is standing up. So he's doing everything proper. And there is this tax collector way on the other side, standing far off. He's not praying like everybody else. He doesn't know how to pray. The only thing that he knows is what he doesn't know. And the only thing that he knows is that he needs God. And so with as simple words as possible, God be merciful to me. And he beats his chest. That's something that they did not do. You see, this man, he did not care but what everyone else thought about him. It was not comparative. It was not situational. He knew he needed grace. 
You see, comparison and circumstances may bring humbling situations, but it it does not necessarily make someone humble, right? You could have lost a job and it humbled you for a moment, but what happens when the circumstances change and you get another job, what happens? There's a pride and a trust of yourself that grows from within. When something doesn't work financially, what happens? You're broken, you're in need. It humbles you for a moment, but because pride is still in your heart, once you start to become more financially independent, what happens? There's now a growing trust within yourself. What you realize is for this man, all he was was looking at God and saying, God, have mercy to me. So the second thing that we see is humility is God-centered. It's not circumstantial. Now, circumstances can break you, But it's not circumstantial because as soon as those circumstances change, as soon as you stop comparing yourself, or as soon as you actually grow in some sort of skill, what happens? Pride and therefore judgment. So it's not circumstantial. It's not situational. It's God-centered. God have mercy on me. And that's it. When you fix your eyes on God and see who he is, it's as simple as recognizing he is God, we are not, And he's dependent on God, that God has to have mercy. If God does not have mercy, I have no chance. I have no hope. There's a God-centeredness to his faith. His faith is, is not about his works. His faith is about God and what he will do. So humility is God-centered. There's no ulterior motive. And humility is cross centered. It's cross-centered. See, he doesn't lift up his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And all the commentators mention this point. That word for mercy here is not the traditional word for mercy. It's a theological word, propitiation. What he is praying is God propitiate me. And then it's not a sinner, it's the sinner. God propitiate me, the sinner. What does propitiate mean? It's the action of God turning away his, his wrath through an atoning sacrifice. And so this is what the Levitical system was about. And when they would offer that animal as a sacrifice, it's God propitiating his wrath, turning his wrath because of an atoning sacrifice. So propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. If you can understand this, though it's theological, you may not feel like you're a very theological person, what it'll help you do is not have your faith so dependent on your emotions. I feel like I'm close to God. I feel like I've been a good person. Because again, it's a me-centered, pride-centered faith. And so when he says, God, propitiate me, the sinner, what he is saying is, God, turn your wrath away from me. Be merciful to me. Turn your wrath away from me through some sort of atoning sacrifice. And so that's why in 1 John 2, 2, it talks about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. That he is the ultimate sacrifice. And so he is the propitiation. It was not the bulls. 
It was not the animals of the Old Testament. They were simply, if you remember, a check. If you remember a check, a check was a piece of paper that you would write, you know, to Johnny, right? And you would say $200, and you would sign it, and you would give it to that person. That was simply a sheet of paper. But if you ripped it, it mattered because it represented real money. And that's the Old Testament sacrifice. The life of these animals did not actually propitiate, but it pointed forward to Christ. And so when he says, the tax collector, propitiate me, the sinner, the re- Jesus, how does Jesus respond, respond at the end of it? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. It's like, what? Justified? Law? What are you talking about? It comes out of nowhere. But God knows exactly what he needed, that his sins would be atoned for. And the question then is, how does Jesus have the audacity to say you are justified? In this parable, all he hears is, God, have mercy on me. And he goes home justified. It's because of what Christ will do. Jesus knows exactly what he will do. You see, Luke, in, in Luke 16, 15, talks about justification in these ways. Talking to people, Jesus says this, you are those who justify yourselves before men. And that's our world. We're always trying to justify ourselves before men. And so the reason you study is not to simply learn education, learn how to do math, learn how to read, learn history. No, the reason you study is to justify yourself with grades to be able to enter into college. And then in the same way, you justify yourselves with grades to get into a workplace. In that workplace, you justify yourself by your skills to get that promotion. You work out, you diet, all that stuff to justify yourself, to present yourself to someone saying, hey, I'm available, I'm a good catch. And the way in which this whole world operates is we're justifying ourselves over and over and over saying, am I good enough now? Am I good enough to be accepted? And so when this tax collector, this oppressive man who took money from the poor says, I have no hope in myself. God, you have to propitiate my sins. Have mercy on me. And God says, oh, you get it. This religious man thinks he's all good. But you get it. So you go home justified. And then the passage after, what's it about? He wants you to know how to approach God. You don't approach God like a student trying to earn grades. You don't approach God by trying to Learn that skill to get that promotion. You don't approach God by looking good enough that, someone, that one day someone will marry you. No, you don't justify yourself before God. God justifies you. And he says, come, my child. Luke 18. 15, now they were bringing even infants, infants, infants to him that he might touch him. When the disciples saw, they rebuked them. And Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me. 
Do not hinder them. Do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the ultimate picture of God's heart. He does not operate like the world where you justify yourself and justify yourself hoping someone will hire you, someone hoping someone will marry you. He does not operate in that way. He values you because he is your father. And you are his child. And when you understand that relationship, when God is that God, that great God, that good God, what starts to happen? Obedience. Just like you learn something because you want to learn something. Isn't that like profound? You study a subject, not to get an A, you study a subject to learn. But that's a world, the way in which we've been wired. So now your desires for God, obedience to him is not some mercenary. I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be good enough, and God's going to accept me. He's like, oh, you're so wrong. Come to me as a child. And so when you start to know his goodness, that's what evangelism is. Hey, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about who he is, how beautiful he is. Because you simply love him and you want others to know him. And so when you do these things for the Lord, you take these risks, you know what he says? Well done, good and faithful servant. He sees what you do. He says, well done, my servant. Yes, share the gospel. Yes, grow the kingdom. Yes, more children for the kingdom. But in your worst, when you struggle, when you doubt, when you do that thing you shouldn't do, and you did it again, and you feel like, can I, can I go to God? Is his grace enough? You know what he says? Let the children come to, come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. That is you. When you say, God, have mercy on me. Propitiate my sins. The Father says, I have sent my Son to atone for your sins. There's no more atoning that needs to be done. For Christ, my Son, has atoned for your sins. The Son would say, when he hears your prayer, have mercy on me, he will say, I have willingly, for the joy set before me, laid down my life. I call you my friend. The Spirit will say, I am working in you right now that you would understand that, you, that God is rich in mercy for you, and that you would know the love of Christ in your heart exceedingly today. You see, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is all working today that you would know with assurance that you are his son, you are his daughter. And he tells you, for such is the kingdom. Do not hinder them from coming to me. Come to me, my child. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. 
Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.